This is Dr. Scannerbear. I'm trying to get a good position to go on live here. I'm trying to do this from home and I wanted to say thank you all for joining. This is Dr. Velma Scanterberry and I am coming to you with Del with sorry, Dialysis Patient Citizens Educational Center. Uh, this is our Ask the Doctor program. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Steve and uh, Yolanda and Jamal, I appreciate you being here. If you have any questions, uh, go ahead and post your questions in the chat. I am Dr. Velma Scantaberry. I'm the medical consultant for Dialysis Patient Citizens Educational Center. And so today we want to talk about anything you want to talk about. First, I'd like to get the ball rolling with talking to all those who are listed for kidney transplant. Those of you who are in dialysis thinking about kidney transplantation and those who are on the list. And so we wanna talk about how to, find a, how to find a donor, how to find a living donor. And for many of you who are listed, I, I hope you are encouraging your family and friends to sign your organ donor card. We've had a few patients come through our transplant center and they have, um, we talked about thinking about uh, living donation as well as deceased donors, and they weren't even interested in organ donation. And I found that very disappointing because if you are on the list for a transplant, your family should be on board with organ donation. And that is very important because you are looking to others to donate to you so you can live a, a healthy life. And so it becomes important for, for those of who you who are supporting your loved one to also know that this is a gift of life. This is a gift of life that you can help others. Uh, and I also want to talk about the fact that as someone on the list, as someone in need of an organ uh, transplant, that you can use your story as your platform to advocate others to be organ donors and even to be a living donor. Oftentimes, many people are not aware of the fact of what we call direct donation. So I have a son who is a, a daughter who is on the transplant list. I and none of my family members are unable to donate because we have the same disease process. Then you know that I can use that platform to advocate for others and for, to be organ donors. And someone at my job may then have an idea that, you know, perhaps I can be a, a living donor or talk to my family about, about organ donation. And lo and behold, one of my families passed on. And I remember, oh, my friend has a, a relative who needs a transplant. And now that person is going to say, I want my one of my loved one's organs to go directly to Mr. Jones' son because he or she needs that a kidney. And so we can talk about non-directed, I mean, about directed donation in that that person is saying, I want to give one of these kidneys of my loved one to someone I know on the list. And so when you share your story with others, other people become more motivated in case they have a loved one who passed on to be able to help that person uh, receive an organ uh, donor 
uh, kidney or liver, whatever it may be. So it's important to share your story with others because you're not only sharing your story, but you're also educating others about the process. You educate others about the need for organ donation, the need to think about living donation, the fact that there are people out there who have a, a disease and a problem that you as an individual may be able to help. So there's a question about a uh, patient was told he was ineligible for a transplant because of calcium. And, you know, one of the things that happens when you have abnormalities in your calcium phosphorus metabolism is that you can have too much buildup of calcium uh, in your arteries, uh, in different, in all the fine vessels of your body. And so it's important to control your calcium and phosphorus metabolism because uh, when that's out of whack, it leads to worsening of what we call plaque disease or arteriosclerosis. Arteriosclerosis is hardening of your arteries. And so many times I've taken a patient to transplant only to find that their blood vessels are so hard from calcium buildup that I'm unable to make that connection. And in order for me to, to make the vessel connections, the vein and the artery in particular, I have to connect that artery to a blood vessel which means I have to make an opening into it. And if that blood vessel is very, very hard uh, because of calcium buildup, uh, I'm not able to do that. Sometimes you're able to uh, chisel through and uh, make an opening, but it'd be so thick that it then causes cracks to occur in different areas of the blood vessel, which can then lead to clotting of that blood vessel uh, it can lead to clotting if some of those, those uh, small pieces of calcium go up into the kidney. We'll see kidneys not work because of that. So most of the time, it's not just that that area of, of where you want to connect the kidney, but the fact that the plumbing or the pipe that's bringing the blood to that kidney may not be adequate enough because the calcium buildup has made the lumen of the blood vessel so much smaller. So that will lead to poor flow to the blood, of blood to that kidney, uh, which may mean that that kidney may not be successful in being able to work appropriately the way that you want it to work uh, for that person. So I hope that helps. And it's usually one of the things we worry about is, is if you have that much calcium deposition in that area of your vessel, which is high up in your uh, pelvis, we worry about the fact that they may, as that blood vessel goes down into your leg, you also have decreased blood flow because of calcium buildup in the blood vessels to your leg, which will put you at risk for uh, clotting of that leg if we interfere with the little blood, the blood flow going down to that leg uh, and the potential loss of limb uh, you know, as a result of trying to put that kidney in. So it's not just that one buildup of calcium. Uh, oftentimes we do a CT scan to see if one side is better than the other and that there's less buildup on the left side compared to the right side in the hope that I'll be able to use a different site. Uh, but you also have to remember that in order to place the kidney in, we have to clamp that blood vessel both above and below to prevent the flow of blood in order to make that connection to place the new kidney. Now, if that blood vessel is crunchy and 
hard, there's no way we're going to do that without being able, without injuring the blood vessel because we're going to clamp down to prevent the flow and that will cause damage not just to the area where we're trying to implant the kidney but also above and below when we're trying to block off the, the blood flow from below. And so you end up with an injured blood vessel and like I said, loss of blood to your leg which may be not repairable. So it's a lot of things happen there. I hope that's able to, I hope that gives you an explanation of why it's important to one, stick, be really conscious of your diet when you're on dialysis, pay attention to your phosphorus levels, make sure you keep your phosphorus under control. And I know that it's tough oftentimes to take those phosphorus binding tablets, but we know that one of the things that as you come to transplant, if you are non-compliant and your phosphorus levels out of whack, that's often a signal that you're going to have a lot of issues um, with deposition um, in your blood vessels. So it's mostly not necessarily the level of calcium uh, as it is it what's, where the calcium is accumulated in, in your body. Some people even get what's called calciphylaxis, where there's deposition into the soft tissues, uh, giving you ulcerations and giving you uh, heart areas that become a medical issue. So uh, thank you for that question and appreciate and hope that whoever uh, is listening for the answer that I've done an appropriate job in explaining that. So thank you so much. So you want to talk a little bit more about uh, advocating for living donation. We want to be able to talk about having someone, if you as a person on dialysis is not comfortable uh, approaching family members, approaching friends about what it means to be a about considering living donor, think about having an advocate, someone who can speak on your behalf uh, and someone who can use the, t the, um, the information that is put out there at various uh, transplant sites to, and uh, kidney sites to how to advocate for uh, your loved one, how to go about getting them, um, getting your information about them to other people. Uh, for instance, use your church platform, use your community center. Not only is that an avenue to talk about kidney disease and even your journey to, to dialysis or your journey to end-stage kidney disease if you're not in dialysis, but it allows others to learn about kidney disease. It allows others to realize that the two leading causes are diabetes and high blood pressure. Uh, and that many these both of these diseases being asymptomatic, meaning that you can have <clears throat> a very fast, far advanced disease and not understand uh, the consequences that both high blood pressure and diabetes ruin your blood vessels, and especially your smaller blood vessels that lead to kidney disease. Not only does it lead to kidney disease, it leads to uh, damage to the blood vessels in your eyes. So you end up with uh, diabetic eye changes and people end up with blindness. Uh, there are those who end up with a heart attack because the blood vessels to their heart, the smaller blood vessels become damaged. And so you have oftentimes silent attacks. And so many patients in the workup will, for a kidney transplant, will undergo stress tests and will find that they've had a heart attack in the past. And they never realize that they did because as a diabetic, those things are usually don't manifest these symptoms. And so it's important to know and get checked 
So the question is this, does a person who donates a kidney get any special privileges if they need a kidney in the future? And yes, they do. So one of the things as living donors is that we want you to understand that we're not going to choose you as a living donor if there's any underlying predictable signs and symptoms that we can say you may be at risk for kidney disease down the line. So yes, there are people who may be uh, have underlying high, high blood pressure, but because of the age, they're in their 50s or are so and they have no consequences of that high blood pressure and they're donating to a relative they can still be a living donor um, and so anyone who in the past has donated a kidney say 20 years ago 25 years ago as a young person and now they come forth and they have kidney disease they are able to get extra points to get transplanted above everybody else and so as a living donor you get special privilege to get on the deceased donor list. And oftentimes you supersede everybody else because of that gift of donation. Uh, you're below the children, but above everybody else, except for those who have high antibodies, antibody levels. And so you do get an opportunity to get transplanted. <clears throat> and many of these people, many of these past donors can often, if recognized early on, can get listed when the EGFR gets at 20% uh, or less, excuse me, <clears throat> and then they're able to get transplanted with very little to no time on dialysis. And that is such a great advantage. So <clears throat> I've only had one patient who had, uh, who had been a donor and had been on dialysis because his, her doctor was not aware that she had been a living donor and the advantage that she received being a living donor to someone else. Uh, when she came forth to get evaluated for kidney transplant, we said, do you know you can get transplanted in the next few months based on your blood type? And I said, pack your bags. You, you may get called quite early. And she was like, I'm not quite ready yet. I'd give me some time to think about this. And lo and behold, she was transplanted uh, within four months of getting on the list because she had that privilege. And so it's important to understand that for us in the transplant arena, one of the things as patients come to transplant is that we want to make sure that they're free of infection. Uh, there's a question there about sepsis. Explain it. Sepsis is when you have an infection that has gone from that confined area of your body now that it's throughout your body. So you present with uh, you have, let's say, something as simple as a um, a bladder infection, and so you had, you thought you had a bladder infection, and this is say a transplant patient, and, um, and but your bladder is is your kidney transplant is so now very close to your 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 bladder, so but you actually had a kidney infection, and so before you know it, your you have fever and chills, which means that now the bacteria has moved from just your kidney to uh, in your blood. And so sepsis is when we, we do it, you now have uh, all these this, uh, this bad bacteria that was initially in your kidney has now seeped into your bloodstream. So when we do a, a blood test to look, check, send your blood to be analyzed, we find that there are bacteria already floating around your blood. There's bacteria in your urine uh, and now you have what's called sepsis because now your body has been uh, susceptible to this infection. It's gone beyond your kidneys 
and now it's in your bloodstream. So when you have sepsis, it causes your body to release certain hormones. You get very ill. You have uh, your blood pressure may go down. Uh, your fevers will go high and your body slows down. Sepsis often will require intravenous antibiotics to try to overcome uh, the bacteria that's there. Some patients may, depending on the weather, develop other complications from the sepsis, uh, which may can often shut down uh, their ability to breathe. Some people may need to be on a ventilator, depending on how overwhelming it gets, especially if you are immunocompromised and develop sepsis. And it requires not just treatment with one antibiotic, but it usually requires us to pull out the big guns to cover all areas of uh, both aerobic and anaerobic types of bacteria. We check to see whether there's fungus infection. Uh, and if you are on uh, immunotherapy, uh, such as with your trans, if you are on three drugs for your, for your kidney transplant, we would often lower some of those to allow your body to help fight that infection. So sepsis is very, uh, very virulent and it, it can get out of hand. And so we want, we tell patients, if you think you have an infection, make sure you check with your doctor early on and get your antibiotics started so that you can uh, not let that infection go on to sepsis. Another, is there an age limit for transplantation the same in every state? Note, the limit for transplantation varies from program to program. It may be even within the state and have different age limits. So if you look at the, well, here in Delaware, we have only one program. If you go to Pennsylvania, which is right across the border, they have many programs, say eight or 10, and each program will have their own criteria for the age limit, depending on whether it's, um, uh, we're talking about kidneys. Some Most people may say 75. There are a few programs may go 78. There may be programs who may go to, to uh, 80, uh, more and more you want to, uh, you want to decide whether each program will evaluate patients. We may say an age limit of 75, but if you are already on the list and you hit 75, we, most programs will not take you off at 75. We'll give you another year maybe to see how you, where you're coming up and if you're get, coming close to getting are transplanted or they may offer you some kidneys that others may turn down to see if you want to be able to get transplanted and come off the list. So it varies from program to program, even within the state. So uh, some patients may get turned down for uh, a deceased donor, whereas a living donor, that may be different. So you always want to check with that program and see what the age limit is. Uh, there are those who are requesting to be live. Let's see what may um, And are there any other questions? Thank you all for that question. I appreciate that. Uh, one of the things that we, we also were talking about is we, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, uh, put your questions in the chat. You know, we were talking about advocating for uh, your family as a uh, as donors, if you are a potential person, we want to be, a, if you're a potential donor, um, you want to know the risks and benefits of being a living donor. You want to talk to other donors. Uh, some people are very apprehensive, but once you're able to, to uh, speak to another living donor who, 
who can help alleviate your fears, can walk you through the process, can answer your questions that perhaps the transplant center itself may not be able to answer, and understand the recovery period. We, we wouldn't take anyone as a donor unless they're medically cleared, and we want donors to feel comfortable donating because they're, they're giving up themselves. They're a healthy person. They're the ones who uh, go into the operating room without any possible uh, medical issues. They're there to be put to sleep, not for themselves, but to, for the benefit of others. And so it's upon us as, as uh, doctors to make sure they're healthy and that they're going to do well. You always, you don't want, you don't want others to be, uh, to, to, you don't want a donor to succumb to anesthesia. So you want to do what you what you can beforehand to rule out of donors. This is why there's an age limit to living donors. Uh, can someone be a 78 year old and be a living donor? Um, they have to be in tip top shape uh, because the other side of the coin is who are they donating to? Because a kidney at age 78 may be already, remember that kidney is already 78 years old, uh, not so much the person wants to donate, but the benefit of taking that kidney from someone who's older to give to someone, uh, it may not be beneficial considering that that kidney has 78 years on it. So it's not so much that they're healthy to go through the process, it's what's the outcome of that kidney to someone who may be younger than them. And secondly, what will become of that 78 year old with now with one kidney, let's say his EGFR was 85%, as we get older, our kidney functions uh, decrease. And now you've taken away one kidney uh, and now he's left with a uh, 45% kidney function. You want to be able to make um, even less depending on what his initial function was. And now you want to make sure that that person isn't going to end up in, on dialysis as that one kidney deteriorates uh, and as make, you know, making sure that he doesn't have high blood pressure and diabetes and other, other problems. So when we consider someone who's older as a living donor is not so much just their age, but also what is the function ability of the kidney at that, that, that age. I'm in my 60s and already my, my EGFR is about 70%. So it makes it, uh, okay, so if I give one of my kidneys away, uh, what am I left with and will I be okay in 10 years uh, with that kidney, with half that kidney function? Uh, and will I be too old to get on the list for our kidney transplant if I develop kidney disease 10 years from now. <clears throat> so those things are important to consider when we look at people who want to be older, uh, to, when we look at older donors who want to donate. Um, so thank you all for being here. If you have any, any last questions, let me know. Thank you, Jamel. Uh, and those who are on the call, I don't know how to allow you to join. I tried clicking the button and giving you um, ability to, to be live, but it doesn't seem to be working. So I appreciate if you have a question, put it in the comment. <clears throat> I can answer it as much as possible. Um, again, a join dialysis patients, citizens at dialysispatients.org. We have a Facebook Live that I'll be doing in two weeks at dialysis dialysis patient citizens. Uh, we also have information online on our, on, on our website. 
so that you can gain more information about what it means to, uh, you know, how to improve your time on dialysis, how to have better outcomes, how to advocate for politically for those, uh, for in things that are in your state that is ongoing. Uh, there are lots of bills being passed. You, you want to be able to speak to your state representatives about things that can benefit dialysis patients. There's also lots of information on upcoming trips. I see someone posted that they're dialysis patient advocate and they're looking forward to the trip in to DC in October. That is wonderful. Thank you, thank you for posting that information. And for those of you who are interested, please go to dialysispatientcitizens.org and get more information. Join our Facebook group, join our Instagram group. Uh, be, you know, you can also sign up to receive the, the, the newsletter. Jamal Felton says uh, he's also an advocate and he'll be there as well. So awesome, awesome. This is wonderful news. And uh, I want to tell you guys that this is the, a platform where you can ask questions. We will try to get your answers. If, we, if I can't answer them here, we'll try to do it uh, either online or maybe have a online platform where we can answer on the website uh, and as questions come through i try to answer them as best as possible so for all of you who are going to dc in october congratulations the uh, the more representatives we have the better is it, it will be because then you can gain all that needed information to go back and really be helping those uh, who are on dialysis in your region and be able to bring that information back. So I thank you all for signing up and uh, being there as advocates. We need more advocates. So if there's many, uh, many of you on the call who are not advocates and something you want to do for your, for the patients in your area, uh, feel free to, again, go to our website, dialysispatientcitizens.org and, um, and get more information. Do what you can to educate others in your unit, educate others in, in your area, and begin to get patients to wellness. They had in terms of making sure they're seeing their physicians, not just the nephrologists, but making sure they, they have a primary doctor. That's very important. You wanna make sure that you are being screened for other things that may be important to your health. Have you gotten your colonoscopy? You know, are you getting checked for uh, uh, any potential cancer risk? Is there a risk of breast cancer in your family that you need to know about? Is there a risk of thyroid cancer? Are you, you know, if you're just hypertensive, are you getting your hemoglobin A1C checked to make sure you're not at risk for diabetes? And so are you getting your cardiovascular uh, work being done? If you're on the list, uh, transplant list, you get these done automatically because most transplant centers want to see an echocardiogram on a stress test uh, on an annual basis. But if you are not on a transplant list, you wanna make sure, especially if you're diabetic, that you get your cardiovascular workup done. So I thank all the patient advocates who are on the call today, who are, and I thank you for joining us. I thank you for being an advocate and continue to do all the good work you're doing and bring one other person along with you so that they can learn and experience the wonderful work that's out there to be done. God bless everyone. Have a wonderful day. Stay healthy. Stay in the shade. Use your sunblock. See your doctor. 
and we'll see you next time. Take care.